First time at CMC, a show of hands, please. Welcome. Uh, how many people have heard at least, I've been going on for actually a few years, whenever I might give a talk, it's on this one theme. Um, <clears throat> how many people have heard at least, I don't know, two or three of these talks? I would hope no one had heard it, then I can just grind out the same old stuff. <laughs> I mean, I have to make up new stuff to say. I've been, uh, it's sort of a, it's not sort of, it is a personal tradition. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I can't say that every Wednesday evening talks, of course, once a year precede Thanksgiving. And um, as often as I can, I think almost always, I've given that talk because I like to. Uh, <clears throat> so the theme is set. Uh, if you read the brochure, it says self-knowing, etc., quiet passion. And uh, I'll try to work that into uh, Thanksgiving, giving thanks, uh, because uh, for me it's a, uh, a very important, it's the only holiday, American holiday, that I can say I have an, an authentic connection to. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a, a Russian Jewish uh, immigrant community, and Christmas meant nothing. We would look around and just were, we didn't know what was going on. Uh, Halloween was even stranger. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we were trying to look okay, and this was saying, the less okay you look, the better. Um, Fourth of July took a while before we realized what that was about. But Thanksgiving was, uh, first of all, it was secular, so whether you were religious or not, and I had two streams, one parent very religious, another parent very irreligious, anti-religious, hated religion. Um, <clears throat> it was sort of obvious you'd, you'd give thanks, and it was, uh, then it would be family coming together, uh, a large family, and I uh, was fortunate I had parents who, I, who loved me, and I loved them, and great aunts and uncles, and wonderful grandparents, it sounds a bit idealized, probably is, but um, some truth to it. Uh, and so it was a happy time. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, of course, we can express and fe feel and express gratitude any time of the year, any time in any day, because uh, perhaps, I don't know, uh, some of you may be feeling lonely or down and sometimes it's harder on a holiday like this. But if pressed, I bet you could find some reason for being grateful. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I narrow it down on, uh, because it's a Dharma talk, because there's so many things that any one of us could bring up about, uh, that we're grateful for in life. Uh, because whatever it is, Wherever it is you think you are, and who, however it is you think, think you are, where you are and who you think you are, uh, we've all had a lot of help. We've had some hindrances too, of course, maybe a lot. But uh, we're all very, very tightly interrelated. There's a, uh, a wonderful um, 
Buddhist sutra called the Avatamska Sutra. Um, <clears throat> and in it, to make this point, uh, what's emphasized in the Buddhist teaching is the interrelationship of everything. Uh, one of the meanings of emptiness, which for the, those who are very new, um, some of this may sound strange, but what can I do? Uh, maybe if you're drawn to it, it'll, you'll see that it's actually quite practical. Um, <clears throat> emptiness is actually a rather profound concept, but one aspect of it is that nothing stands alone, uh, is autonomous, stands on its own two feet, independent of everything else. So in this sutra, there's one sentence that jumped out at me that I've never forgotten, and that is to make the point, if one mote of dust would be removed from the entire universe, the whole universe would fall apart. Uh, we're tightly interrelated, and so uh, we could enter almost anywhere and start talking, and I think we'd have a lot to share about gratitude. But I, I do want to limit it. This is a meditation center, and so I want to narrow that focus down to it. Um, <clears throat> Self-knowing, a quiet passion. Um, most of you have not heard talks in this series. Those of you who have, uh, it would be a reminder. Uh, some of you have, have heard a fair number of the talks, and maybe you're tired of hearing me go through some of this. But um, if so, let me ask you if some of the things that are mentioned, have you done them yet? You know, <laughs> In other words, the suggestions about practice and ideas, have you done them yet? Uh, because of course you're going to hear this stuff over and over again. Uh, it's not a, uh, this is not a, uh, a workshop in creative writing. It's an attempt to get us to change our lives through understanding ourselves and uh, presenting us with tools to do that so we're not helpless. Uh, but each one of us has to do it. So start with self-knowing. Um, sounds pretty familiar. Uh, self. Uh, me, right? Uh, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. And I think Descartes is absolutely correct. I think, therefore I am. And when we wake up in the morning, we are sort of, check this out, see if it's so. I am tired, I am alert, I am a engineer, I am a mom, I am a student, and then the I, in other words, we keep adding things on to the I, and that's what we call a me. And <clears throat> we don't use a term self-knowing, typically, it's the, the much more familiar term is self-knowledge. And I'm intentionally not using that term, because knowledge is something we acquire. Um, just like a library, and I saw a, a clip on some new computer that will can ha have hundreds of thousands of books on it, uh, and you can read them like a book. Any of you, it's the, you probably some of you may have seen it. Uh, I still like good old good old little book somehow, but <clears throat> I'm stuck in my generation. Um, knowledge is something we acquire and store, and even self knowledge. There have been retreats especially longer ones, where I've seen people carrying around a little spiral notebook. And I've said, well, 
what do you put in that spiral notebook? And say, well, all of my insights that I get on the retreat. <laughs> it's a mis- that's wrong direction. That, that contestant has eliminated. I don't know what all those shows are about, but I just see advertising for the shows. I've never watched them. You know, these living shows or whatever. What do they call them? Yes, that, that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not about accumulating more and more characterizations of yourself, more and more labels and ways of notions and ideas which we then uh, identify with and then come to believe in and then we make whatever you make, that's what you have. Make your bed, that's you have to sleep in it. You make, we make ourselves up in a certain sense. And we've started doing it since we started to learn. And what I'd like to emphasize today uh, that I'm so grateful for, and we'll get to it, is um, a new way of looking at learning for me. I mean, it's, now it's not new, except in the sense that it keeps being fresh. But uh, at the time that I saw it, it made a huge difference in my life. Uh, and that's when I came upon um, these teachings. Um, <clears throat> so the point is not to, a more conventional use of the term self-knowledge would be to, let's say you, while living you pay attention and you come to a conclusion about yourself. Oh yeah, I'm the kind of, I'm a this or I'm a that. And it started a long time ago when we're very, very small. We look into people's eyes, especially adults, and they tell us who we are. Don't they? They tell us, he's a cute little guy, but a little slow. Uh, uh, not a, he's a little fragile, not too healthy a child. Or they look and say, what a wonderful, what a beautiful young woman she's going to The point is we get lots of uh, conclusions from other people that tell us who we are. And then that's how we, of course, we're helpless. We're just little children. And then out of that is the beginnings of a lifelong preoccupation with ourselves. The story of me and, and uh, story of me and my life starring me, of course, and uh, it seems to be endlessly fascinating. Uh, and we revise it and reconstruct it and lie about it. You know, not intentionally necessarily, but uh, I've checked sometimes when people ask me about my past, and then I've gone home and I've realized. Boy, that sounded so nice and neat and tidy. It fits in so beautifully with how I am today. It's like countries that rewrite their history in order to uh, be in the service of what they're trying to accomplish now. So it's quite unreliable, this mind of ours. In fact, it's shameless. Have you noticed? (laughs) Some of you haven't. I can see that. (laughs) My mind is shameless. How's about that? Uh, And that the mind can make up anything. It can tell you whatever it wants. And then, like fools, we often believe it. Okay, so I was no different. So self-knowing is different, though. Self-knowing is, happens in the active present. That is, whether it's in sitting, and sitting is not how we spend most of our life. Uh, and we'll go into, the, if we have time, we'll go into this in much more detail. Uh, self-knowing comes up uh, anytime, anywhere, in any posture, in any situation. As long as you're alive, something is happening that gives you the opportunity to learn about yourself. Because everything is mirroring back 
through our reactions something about ourselves. And the knowing that's valuable here is the seeing of it in that moment. That's why it's ING. It happens in the active present. It's valuable insofar as that's done, and then it's uh, discard, not necessary. We, we can throw it out. Because uh, what happens when you start doing that is the mind starts becoming clear and fresh. Now, that creates a war between the story of me starring me and starting to realize uh, is life all these concepts and notions and conclusions and images that my mind paints, literally, know about myself, which I then identify with and then come to take as being me? Is that what it's about? And then uh, if you come to a place like this, uh, we tell you that, well, that's where the suffering is. Some of us already know it. That's why we came here. We start seeing that who are, we're working, somehow we're working for this story. We're trying to improve it. Uh, it's called self-improvement. And often Dharma practice, uh, for many of us, maybe for all of us as we begin, uh, is really about self-improvement. To become a kinder me, a gentler me, a more compassionate me, a less attached me. That's a big one, isn't it? Letting go. A me that can let go a lot. A freer me. A more generous me. You tell me all the things you like. Okay, it's still me. Okay, so then you'll hear teachings that that's the root of the suffering. The Buddha said so, so it must be true. But it's not just the Buddha. It's in all the great traditions. Just very direct. Buddha used ordinary language. It's not a... It's not a literally, what is being said is this tendency of us humans to identify with virtually anything and make self out of it. A thought comes through the mind. You're a jerk. Yes, I am a jerk. I'm a horrible person. Uh, you just made jerk, so of course you have jerk. If you see it as, it's just a thought. It's like skywriting. You know, I am a jerk. Drink Gorillax milk. It's no different. <laughs> it's no different. It's just that drink Gorillac's milk, we yawn. But I am a jerk. Yes, I am. We grab onto it, and we breathe life into it. And once we breathe life into it, it's, it's what is called creating a Frankenstein. That's the Frankenstein. Uh, we, make, we create it. And then we have to come to places like this and go into expensive psychotherapies and workshops and uh, you know, to heal ourselves of a fiction that we've created. But there's something in us that doesn't really believe what I just said. To a point, also, we're still fascinated by our story. If you're starting to get bored with the story of me, starring me, supporting actors me, music by me, directed by me, <laughs> selling tickets me, every product's popcorn made by me, uh, and then all those titles of, I don't know, GAF, uh, I don't know what they mean, you know, those other... Then now it takes about almost as long as the movie. Everyone has to get credit. Uh, in the old days, it would just be the movie stars, the director, and, uh, and then you could go home. Uh, now it's like it just goes on. And for some reason, we sit there because the music is still playing. And it can go on for 10 minutes of names that who we don't know who they are. We're never going to remember it. We don't even know what the job is. And we're just sitting there because we we're not allowed to leave the auditorium or get up from the TV set until all that finishes, and then it's officially over. Oh, then we can go to the refrigerator or leave the, uh, leave the movie theater. Strange. Okay, so 
this, uh, uh, one teacher I had, uh, Sasaki Roshi, who's a, a, a Zen master, he's still teaching at 100 years old. People carry him into the meditation hall. He's quite a character. And someone asked him once, uh, do you go to the movies? And he said, no, I just give interviews to students. <laughs> okay, those of you who knew, I have to explain. Uh, you're, these are all movies. In other words, he's, he's, he's listening to all the movies that people have about themselves. And they're, they're sharing it with him. And so he listens. And his job, of course, is to uh, punch it fully, you know, just sort of, uh-huh. Did you have, any of you know who W.C. Fields is? If you don't, I know I'm, I'm sometimes I take things for granted and I realize I'm, this is what happens when you get, what did it say? I'm going to be 75 and I've, <laughs> and I've uh, guided into, with wisdom and kind of all that stuff. Uh, W.C. Fields uh, was very refreshing. I'm not suggesting that I want to be that way or that you should. Uh, children would come with their balloon and, and he would look around. If there were no adults, he'd take a cigar and puncture it. You know, he said, get out of here, you little brat. <laughs> okay, it was just, um, and that's what, it, uh, or as one uh, great Chinese master, Lin Chi, put it, someone said, came to him and said, what is your teaching? He said, I have no teaching. He said, come on, you know, look at people are coming from all over China to study with you. Uh, they're coming here for something. He says, all I do is I sit there, I listen to them, and I snatch away their prized possessions. In other words, that which they're really attached to, identified with, and, have, and think is them. And once you make me, then you have it. If you make I'm hopeless, you have I'm hopeless. Then you've got to go to someone, a priest, a rabbi, a benedict, to give you hope. How about not making hopeless in the first place? By seeing it's just a construction in the mind. The mind is like a gland producing all these conclusions about itself. Just like a digestive juices, you know. Thoughts, one after the other, contradictory, none of them last. Which one is true? We grasp on to certain of them. Some of them are great, some are awful. And if you watch your mind, uh, I consider myself a student of my own mind now. Uh, we're getting closer to this education thing. Uh, you'll see that it's a pretty insecure endeavor. Uh, even those of us who might come across, I come across secure, don't I? Confident. But if I watch my mind, it's reassuring itself. It's constantly rehearsing uh, what it should, uh, what it's going to say, say it better, to say it perfectly. It's reliving what it said. Why couldn't I have said it this other way? Now, some of that's learning. That's good. But somehow, it's in flux all the time, and it's it's a rare mind among us that's really at peace. It is possible to be at peace. And some of us, I, as I look around, I know we have our moments of peace, but I mean more than moments. And not dependent on outer conditions, where someone gives you a big raise, or someone falls in love with you, or you fall in love with someone, and then it's, it's good. I mean where inner peace is something that isn't dependent on anything outside of yourself. Because that, that's why we're doing this stuff. But what, what, why aren't we at inner What's making the lack of peace? the vexation, the strife, the conflict. It's not, we tend to locate it outside of ourselves. Granted, the world can be a difficult place to live in, cruel, harsh. But, the in, but inside, it's possible to be free. And that's what freedom, that's what the Buddha is teaching. It's, a, it's the practice of liberation. 
And in a certain way, oddly, it's liberating ourselves from ourselves. Okay, so self-knowing, at first, you can't help starting out with a conventional use of it. I haven't met anyone who doesn't. So the people start reporting what they discovered about themselves as being, they're kind of biographical insights. You find out who I am. But as the practice uh, goes on, what you learn is who you aren't. In fact, we aren't any of it in a profound way. These are, the mind produces an, a notion, an idea, a representation, an objectification, a picture in words, however it puts it. And then we're, we have, uh, we own that when we do, and we take it. And then that's what we call living. That's what we get excited. And, and you can build up a nice story. Some of us have good stories. At a certain point, we have a good job. We're well-received. Well all kinds of nice things can happen to us. And yet, there's some lack of contentment. Why? Because the story is so fragile. And it's out here. And the practice is about intimacy. It's about, uh, it's an interior journey. It's a pilgrimage. But the pilgrimage is going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to get to what is our essence. There are a lot of words used for it. Original mind, true nature. So self-knowing is, uh, now this, start, this seems to happen in a big way, in myself certainly, but I've listened to a lot of minds now. Not for 75 years, but for many years. Um things start to really pick up when you start to get a little bit bored with your story, tired of it. Are any of you tired of your story yet? If you're not, keep going, full speed ahead. <laughs> because, uh, so that some of what gets us to move in this direction, I would say maybe the main thing is suffering. Why else would you, why change otherwise? Just keep fixing the story up, refining it, polishing it, happier endings, make up futures that are incredible, rewrite the past so it's a whatever you want. Uh, at a certain point, we start realizing that there's something that's fabricated. The mind is making up something, and there's something deeper that knows it. It's an externalization. It's like the difference between a graduation picture of yourself and who the, and, and, the, and the person. It's just a snapshot in time. Well, these thoughts, a lot of them are thoughts. When Descartes says, I think, and I'm going to emphasize I, therefore I am, that's correct. The only thing wrong with it is that it assumes that there's no place else to go. That what life is about is fixing up I. Now, wisdom teachings, it's not exclusively the Buddha, Wisdom teachings are saying that that is the, just the bare surface of a human consciousness. Whether you call it uh, egocentric or uh, uh, sometimes the, in, in the Buddhist teaching, the great death is not the death of the body. The great death is the death of that self-preoccupation. And what we're preoccupied with is stories we make up about ourselves, believe, and then live, on, live in and on behalf of and we're doing it with other people who are doing it too. And when you start to pay attention, and all that Vipassana means, not all, it's not trivial, insight is seeing into. When you start seeing the stories, you see them for what they are. Drink Gorillic's milk. 
That's, all, that's what it is. It starts falling away. And then there's fear. Because the story, which is something's writing it and believing in it, uh, it starts feeling frightened. Well, wait a minute. If you start taking the energy out of this story uh, and it starts to not reign supreme, you remove authority. Right now we give tremendous authority to this um, construction that we've made. What would happen if that starts losing authority over us? We panic. But who, what is it that's panicking? It's the star of the story. Well, isn't that me? No. That's who you think you are. Capital T, capital H, capital I-N-K, exclamation point, italics, neon sign. It's who I think I am. It's, and who we are is not an idea. It's not a picture. It's not a sentence. And if I try to say what it is, I've just departed from it because uh, that's it. I'm not, I open my mouth and I'm wrong. Okay, so self-knowing, a quiet passion. Quiet. Uh, typically, passion is something that's very obvious. Dancing with the stars, right? Or bullfight, or, you know... You see the tremendous commitment sports. It's obvious that there's a lot of passion there. This is quiet passion. Um, this inner journey, it doesn't necessarily stick out. If it doesn't stick out, I mean, it's just something that's going on inside, and the person could, from the outside looking in, just seem like a very ordinary person, hopefully. You're not trying to be assertive and, and dominate and all the rest of that stuff. That's, the me needs to do that, to prove to itself that it's really solid. It needs to acquire, endlessly acquire. And if you're an intellectual, subtle kinds of acquisitions. Not so, in, not so subtle, money, power, land, homes, reputations, countries, planets, I don't know what it is that we need to acquire in order to prove that we're okay. Okay, as you start seeing that you don't need that so much, um, you can get quieter, you just, uh, you don't need, there's not much, what's there to prove? As you start, but that has to be a real okay. It's inward, it has nothing to do with what the world thinks of you. It has nothing to do with whether you're uh, rich or poor, whether you're old or young, whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're handsome or not so good looking, beautiful or not so attractive, overweight or underweight, you tell me all the things that drive us crazy. There's something much deeper. Now, this is not to say that, oh, then the outer, typically that, that happens often. People become, in quotes, very spiritual, and then they think, if I only have one pair of shoes, if you're a woman, definitely not high heels, uh, throw away all your makeup uh, and just have two or three outfits uh, plain. <laughs> you know, very modest. Uh, that means you're more spiritual. Uh, and in the extreme, if you're a monk, let's say, uh, if you have three robes and one bowl and one meal a day and limit the number of external things that you can acquire, that that means you're free. It doesn't. I've lived in monasteries. You can be as ego-driven 
about a few objects as you can about uh, owning the world. You know, if Adolf Hitler wanted to own the world, you could, people suffer uh, in all kinds of ways. Moreover, liberation isn't, it has, isn't about objects because it's not inner versus outer. As this unfolds, the story is there. It's not like we don't have a story. We do have a history. There's no point in, uh, I'm not saying that's a complete fiction. Uh, forget about your ancestors, forget about your roots. Uh, I don't, where are you from? I don't talk about those things. Who, we were, who your parents, your grandfather, no, it's irrelevant. I, I'm just into the now. <laughs> the power of now, relaxing into now. So now is big right now. <laughs> <laughs> but like everything else, it won't last, you'll see. <laughs> it's pulling ahead of organic, I think. Okay, so um, the quiet passion is, it's, uh, in a way maybe passion isn't the right word because for some of us that means craving and obsession. It's a sincere interest in what, and, and I'll get to that, in what? What is it we're interested in? And it's quiet, of course. Now it's also a passion for quiet. It's not just that you are quiet and that the fire. Look, awareness can become like an incredible flame. Really and truly. I've done this probably longer than anyone in the, in the hall. I, that, that's, that's no guarantee of anything. I could, be, I could be the dopiest person here. I just, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. Uh, longevity, uh, you know, clock time is not the measure. But I can tell you that I've had a little bit of a taste and others have. Awareness can be so steady, such a steady, powerful flame that the word passion is, is a pretty good word for it. Okay? But it's also passion for silence itself. Now this is a different kind of silence. It doesn't mean that you have to run off to the woods or a cave or a monastery. Um, those are forms, structures that can help us get in touch with the depth of the silence. That is what, the silent, all the silence we could ever want is already here. It's not that we grow it or import it from India. It has nothing to do with any culture. That's the whole point. Okay, it's unconditioned. Everything else, are, these are conditions. They've, they've happened to us. Okay, so this inner silence, which is where this meditation takes you to, uh, that gets, uh, in some, sometimes enlightenment is called the great silence or sometimes, uh, and this is not a bad way to put it, in those moments that I've had it, it's deafening. And some, at first you hear the sound of silence, a kind of subtle hum in the mind, but then you go beyond that. And it's vast and there's no end to it. There's no center to it, there's no periphery. Now that might be very frightening to the ego. And in our culture, being centered is a good term, isn't it? I'm very, that person isn't centered. To begin with is a good term, but the, mo the strongest centered is to not need a center. The most advanced meditation is uh, what is called uh, a non-abiding mind. As when you sit, you literally have no agenda, you're not stationing yourself anywhere, even with the breath. 
it's, that, that means you have no home. Or put positively, it means you're at home everywhere. I mean, inside, inside yourself. To be, but to, we don't begin there. So it's good to get centered in, out, in, out, in, out. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. Omani padme hum, omani padme hum, omani padme hum. Okay, that gives us an anchor in a way. It gives us a, a, some, so that we can have some solid ground. Because the mind to begin with is so wild. And all over the place and in contradiction with itself. And unsatisfying or you wouldn't be here. There are so, such limits. Okay, so, but this silence uh, is not dependent on outer conditions. Um, an image used by Ajahn Chah, who's had a strong impact on this community, a, a very great Thai forest master, uh, he put it this way. If you see, you, we all know a, when a river is moving, right, flowing. We know what that looks like. And we know when a body of water is still, like you can even see to the bottom of it. But what we don't understand, perhaps, is still flowing, or flowing water that's still. That means the silence is supple, pliable. It's not dependent on a special posture, or CIMC, or IMS, or uh, whatever place you think that that's where it goes on. Those are attempts to help us develop the ability to live there independent of the outer conditions. Those of you who knew, I'm sorry if this sounds like gibberish to you. Dharma gibberish. And, and you'll have to practice to find out maybe it is. Maybe it is Dharma gibberish. Okay. Um, okay. Here's, here's what I want to get at in the remaining time. So what am I thankful for, for God's sakes? Get to the point. <laughs> That's my father speaking. A different view of education. Uh, what changed my life continues to change my life. Um, I don't know if that I'm, uh, I don't mean that I'm any more calm or wise or at peace than any of you, but relative to what I know of myself, there's no question. Um, uh, for me, the first part of my life, education, uh, let's put it another way. We've defined intelligence unintelligently. The human race has. Because we've defined it in a... In a uh, we don't see that it's limited. What we call intelligent is logic, rationality, the accumulation of knowledge, information, being able to use it creatively and quickly, being well-read, being able to put ideas together. And that leads to extraordinary achievements in one sense. Look at science and technology. It is staggering. Just staggering. Okay. And that's what we call intelligence. Okay. A person's intelligent if they score very high on a certain test. Okay. Which tests certain, granted, certain human abilities of the mind. No question about that. But what I'm suggesting is at a certain point, Two things happened. One, I saw that learning doesn't end. See, I thought that learning is what goes on in school. And learning is what goes on while you're getting a degree. And then after you finish, when you get your degree and you finish with your formal schooling, then you, just, you live. You do your living. <laughs> you start living. And sometimes it does feel that way, doesn't it? Enough of that. 
Um, but that's, or that it comes from a book. Certainly, I was brought up that way. It was tremendous reverence for books. And learning came from books and other people, words. Okay. Uh, and it was only seeing to, through my pain, tremendous pain and disappointment, because I'd done fairly well using that ability in the world to uh, acquire uh, nice advanced degrees and teach at prominent schools and do things which gave me some recognition, a little bit more cash in my pocket. Uh, people started looking at me in a different way, more positively. My parents suddenly were puffed up with pride. Okay? And yet something was missing. It took a while from the, after the high of being of the recognition for using this, my noodle well. Okay? Um, suddenly, and my, my field was social psychology, I knew a lot about the human mind, other people's minds. I knew about... Uh, and I knew it conceptually. I knew what other great psychologists and philosophers had said about the mind. Uh, there was only one problem, and I'd read a lot of books about the mind, is I didn't know my own mind. How sad. How stupid. You cannot understand, I'm making a very forceful statement, what the Buddha is talking about, unless you start to, to, to learn about your own mind. So it enlarges the scope of what learning is. For me, the quiet passion is learning how to live. We don't know how to live too well. Or even if you are living a, pr a pretty good life or a very good life, uh, there are constant challenges. Every new day, new challenges are at our doorstep presented to us. Sometimes they're very de demanding and seem insoluble. Challenges and what we call problems. But people, events, nature, the condition of the body, it doesn't stop. Finally, aging, sickness, and death. It's the, the learning is something that's ongoing. It doesn't stop. It's not uh, limited to a school or to a book. But we have to want to do it. We have to not want to do it. See, that's the quiet passion for me. And I'm grateful that I got it, and I learned it from people. I had a few teachers who taught me that, and they said, look, what you learned in university is great. No one's saying it isn't, but it's a limited, uh, one of the meanings, it's not uh, often pub, uh, presented, it's not presented so frequently. Ignorance is central in the Buddhist teaching. Our suffering ultimately flows from ignorance. We ignore ourselves so we don't understand ourselves. So it's no surprise that we should suffer a lot. But one of its meaning is we're ignorant of our full potential. Now, full potential goes way beyond improving the me. A bigger, a better me, a kinder me, and all the rest of that. That's good. If you have a lo low self-esteem, get to medium and then high self-esteem, whatever, you know, all these workshops. Uh, that's good. If you have low self-esteem, it's probably crippling you in your life. So, of course, move out of that. If you have, don't have any ego strength, get some ego strength, build up some skills, of course, but does it end there? And what, what all wisdom teachings are saying, certainly the Buddhist teaching, is that's where it begins. When you realize uh, it's not about self, it's not about self-improvement, it's about self-transcendence. 
it's going beyond what we think of as being me. Now, what is that? It's not getting high, although when we get high, sometimes in meditation, some of you get very concentrated and you feel at peace and joy and all that, and that's enough. And then, of course, it doesn't last. It's not wisdom. It's good feelings. It's another way to feel good. Great. I'm not against feeling good. I like to feel good, too. Wisdom is, uh, goes much deeper. Wisdom, of course, is, is good feeling. But it's a good feeling that comes from facing everything, especially this one, this one, me. And for you, it's you. Okay, so suddenly I woke up to that. If I had one millionth of the energy, I had tremendous I was an avid reader. And I really loved to, 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 to read and to study. And school was, for the most part, not, not entirely, of course, uh, it was okay. I liked it, a lot of things about it. And I did well at it. Uh, when I learned that the energy that I, that I used there, if only even a small fraction of it, would go into paying attention to how I actually live. My first teacher of these things was an Indian gentleman named Krishnamurti. And I spent a week with him, and then at the end, I wanted, you know, going home instructions, pep talk, essentially. He didn't give much of a pep talk, but what he did say, he says, put your house in order. That was the first thing he said. And I said, oh, you mean because I'm sloppy? I just throw my clothes on the floor? And he went, oh, this guy is really, uh, he's uh, starting at a very low level. All right, start there. Start there. Start by putting your clothes in the closet instead of on the floor. You know, but I'm talking about your inner house. You know, start, it's what we call sila in the Buddhist tradition, uh, ethical refinement. Watch how you live. And then, then the key phrase was, pay attention to how you actually live. And he emphasized actually, so it nearly knocked me over. Actually live. And the only way you can do that is through self-knowing. In other words, you're paying attention, and you see how you actually speak to a person, and you see your impact on them. And you, you see what somebody else, when they say something, what it brings up in you. And you look at nature and you have no response. Bored to death with it, another tree. Or you feel very close. Or this is not telling you how to live. Self-knowing is not suggesting an ideal so much as committing yourself to, to the truth. And the only way you can find out the truth of how you live is by paying attention. And in order to pay attention, we have to learn how to develop a mind that is clear, that has the ability to see without judging, that isn't prejudiced, biased, through some, some kind of conditioning and preference. It's not for or against. And when for and against comes up, it sees that. And so it, the art of pure observation is the heart, to me, of the Buddha's teaching. Now, once I start to see that, uh, I still read books, by the way, and enjoy them very much, but they're like a nice dessert. Now and then one comes along, and it's more than a dessert. But I can't read for too long. And the really good ones, just two sentences, they're so rich, because it immediately touches something in me that's about living. I realize, because these are, I guess, most of them are, not I guess, most of them are wisdom books. So I'm like, whoa, that's true, isn't it? And then I immediately start looking. Okay. Um, it's a joyful process, even if when what I see is not so great. Because if you embark on this journey of self-knowing, 
And self-knowing doesn't happen just on a cushion, as valuable, invaluable as a cushion is, a retreat center is. It happens anywhere in life. If you're paying attention, you can learn about yourself. And it's not just as a, a concept. It's not adding to the, your story so much as seeing the reaction. And in the seeing, the reaction loses its power. And that's what moves you to another dimension. Call it silence. Call it original nature. Call it true nature. Call it essence. When that gets deep enough, it becomes very, very clear that you have access. So does everyone. You have direct access to the source of energy, pure energy. That's animating the whole universe. We're already part of that now. It's just like a little trickle. Because we're just thinking about things all the time. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, blah, 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 blah. Good thoughts, bad thoughts, interesting thoughts, boring thoughts. Okay. That, has a, that, that function of the human mind is, is precious. It's what, part of what makes us human. Part of what makes us human. The silent mind is not something reserved for weirdos or great saints who have no, you know, completely sallow complexions and, have, and eat one uh, sprout and one mung bean and one uh, teaspoon of brown rice a day. Uh, you can be a Wall Street broker and be wise. I think it would be hard. No, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't what do I know about that? Except I watch them running around the floor there, and I just feel like, this looks like a lunatic asylum. <laughs> but, and out, you know, anyway. Um, so the gift that I feel was given to me um, was, see, I could not have embarked on this path I, I have been anti-religious my whole life. I have very little respect for organized religion. I really do. Sorry. I can't help myself. I've tried not to. I just see so much suffering coming from it. Is there some consolation? Of course there is. You know, it, it helps us at times of need to come to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or wherever you go and to have people who reassure us. I'm not against that. But this ferocious identification, building a sense of me as a whatever it is you, uh, whatever the ideology is, whatever the religion is, whatever the political thing is, we make that into, as if it has the reality of a mountain. A mountain is created by nature, not by our mind. In that sense, it's more really real. Only in that sense. Uh, I've seen it cause so much suffering and continues to. Just look around. What's going on almost everywhere? Um, is the increase in information going to really save us? We're, we already can't absorb the amount of information that exists. We're drowning in information. If information would save us, we would have been saved a long time ago. We're very well informed. We're incredibly well informed. Cambridge is just chock full of ideas and notions and opinions and views and it's a very rich exciting place and there's much more to life there's not that isn't wisdom that's the point uh, wisdom is the art of living learning the art of living now here's what's unique for me about the Buddha's teaching which is why I can do it why I can reconcile a certain conflict that I've had all my life I haven't had it for quite a while but it was very strong in me um, in one teaching of, of the Buddha, fortunately I read it very, very early on, and it was explained to me 
very carefully by one of my teachers. Um, it's called the Kalama Sutra, K-A-L-A-M-A. And in it, the Buddha comes to a town similar to Cambridge, it seems, where everyone, teachers, everything pours into Cambridge. You know, just look at the bulletin boards. Endless smiling faces, you know, with teachings and the most ancient teaching, the fastest route to getting awakened, the, uh, uh, you know, just, well, which one do I pick? If you live in Cambridge, whew, you want Tibetan Buddhism? What, what flavor? Uh, you, you like robes and uh, lots of uh, incense and all kinds of stuff. Definitely Tibetan Buddhism, certain kinds of, uh, of other forms of Buddhism. You like it plain? You, want, you like Vipassana? The teachers just wear sweatpants? <laughs> That's here. Whatever you want, it's all here. We got it. Okay. Every conceivable flavor with smiling faces and this is the most ancient, this is the quickest journey. This one, uh, uh, read this book, here's that, the most disciples. Uh, it's a mall. It's just like, it's not different. And now the magazines are starting, spiritual magazines. I open them up, all that's missing, and sometimes even that's not missing, is a, a uh, not too uh, much clad woman or in a yoga asana with clothes on, but that are very form-fitting. <laughs> now, I don't know what it is. Is it about yoga, or is it about having a nice body? I'm not sure, but uh, and it, it's slick, and it's beautiful, and the graphics are fantastic. And I don't know if it's different than Gentleman's Quarterly or Esquire. Does that still exist? I don't know what, you know, it's good. Okay. Um, hmm. So... In this sutra, the Buddha comes into this town and the people are bewildered. And they say, Buddha, we are, every teacher comes in and basically lays their trip on us and tells us how great their teaching is. And they make a very convincing case for it. They're articulate and this and that. And then another one and another one. We're just very confused. And now here you are. I suppose you're going to do it with us as well. What the Buddha does is something perhaps unique in religious history. I don't know. Some of you may know more about this. What little I know, I think it may be unique in religious history. He says, uh, he makes a distinction between any of these teachings, authorities that we, that we give to, to teachers, teachings, books. Uh, he lists ten kinds of things. For the moment, let's just limit it to teachings and teachers, ancient books, uh, masters, um, personalities who inhabit that title of called master and so forth. Um, he said, learn from them, but test it with your life. If it's beneficial, that is, it leads you away from suffering, that is beneficial for you and the people in your life, keep doing it. It's very practical. If it turns out that it's harmful, unskillful, the first is skillful, You'll see that term a lot if you read Buddhist books. Sometimes it's called wholesome and unwholesome. I don't think I think that terminology is dated. It's a little too pious and puritanical. Um, unwholesome, unskillful, would be where if the teaching leads you to ways which are harmful for yourself, not beneficial, and hurt other people. Okay, so that means you have to 
take the teachings. It's not saying discard them. It's not invent fire for the first time. And also, you can consult with the wise. It, but you don't give absolute authority over to anyone other than yourself. In other words, finally, you have to decide. Of course, we're doing that anyway. If you hand yourself over to some guru and say, please, just tell me what to do. Who did that? You did. So finally, of course, we're always doing it to ourselves. But here it's making it conscious. Okay? And what it's saying is it's encouraging us to gain respect for as human beings of our own ability to be able to discern what is helping us and what isn't instead of keeping us children and immature, spiritually, that is. So it's balanced to me. You take advantage of wise teachings and wise people. Yeah, they're here. Why not? But finally, you also more and more uh, develop the ability to be in touch with your own, uh, own ability to learn, to see the consequences of your actions. If you want to call it karma, please do. It's cause and effect. Quite consistent with science. If you do this, and you see you get that, and the that is harmful, and you keep doing this, and you keep getting that, if you don't want to learn, well, what can any teacher do? What can any... There's, it's not theistic, and it's not, it's not atheistic, and it's, not, it's what is called non-theistic. It, there's no God who's doing it to you. Or is we're, it's asking us to take our own lives into our own hands. Our happiness is our responsibility. That's a heavy one for us. It's asking us to be adults, to grow, to grow up, and to take a look and, to, uh, and learn. It's that which, when I, uh, for me, the joy is not getting some, you know, if you read books, they have different states of achievement. Have you read it? Those of you who have read some, um, you know, the, there are four stages. Some will say six stages. Some will say eight stages and on the journey to enlightenment. Um, I was exposed to all that. I took it seriously. I don't anymore. Uh, textbooks are nice and tidy, very sanitary. And the world is very nice and neat, nice and tidy is the best way I can put it. Life is bigger than any set of ideas, including the Buddhas. And the Buddha would be the first to admit it. He said, These are, this is a rough, it's not life, it's a map. It's, the image that has been used sometimes is, it's the map of a prison. It isn't exactly correct but you can use it to escape. Get my drift. Or is it too deep? <laughs> okay, so uh, it took me a lot of pain and a disappointment because I externally thought I was great and I found that I wasn't. So then that led to despair and that led me to see that external achievement has its place. Look, if you're president of something or a full professor somewhere or... It's not saying to chuck that, or a great writer, or a, whatever it is you like. By all means, excel in what you're doing, but find out how you relate to it. If in addition to the function of what you're doing, you're using it to build a status out of it, uh, so, that it it's a, so that it improves your story, probably there's also suffering, because there's no end to it. In the academic world, I, you know, first you're an assistant professor, then an associate, then a full, then you get tenure, you don't get tenure, full professor, and then do I uh, get tenure or not? Yeah, do you get a chair? You know, finally, what's the last one? A statue after you die? Larry Rosenberg. <laughs> uh, one time, 
and this was very helpful to me, one of my main teachers, a Korean Zen master, um, he was sitting roughly where I am, and the person who asked the question was roughly where you are. And he had very, my teacher, Sansanim, some of you may have heard of him, had very thick glasses. And the student asked Sansanim, he says, I've been reading all these books, Tibetan books, Zen books, Theravadan books, you know, some talk about the four stages to enlightenment, the six stages, eight, you know, twelve, and he said, how many are there? And so Sansanim paused, he wasn't, he paused and went as if he was really thinking, which he wasn't. He took his glasses off, went like that, and he said, how many stages you want? You want eight? We give you eight. You rather have three? We make three for you. And he went on like that. And I realized, yeah, of course. You know, these are nice land. You know, they're kind of 22 miles to Boston, 10 miles to Boston. Okay? Uh, for me, and this is, I didn't make this up, the joy of practice is in the doing of it. The means and the end are the same thing. If you're doing practice, but it's like cod liver oil, you know, and someday when I get my big breakthrough, because I keep reading in the books about it, I'm going to be so happy, it'll be unbelievable. That, that will be the last chapter in the book, the book of me, you know. And, uh, and you go through it, you get up every morning, 5.30, wash up, you know, do your yoga, and then you sit. And I don't feel like doing it, you do it anyway, because it's going to, someday you're going to be incredibly happy. Okay, <laughs> so you keep doing that. Uh, that model is familiar, isn't it? We've been brought up with it, Okay. There's a much more subtle and, to me, more mature one, which is that the means and the end are the same thing. It's taking, all we have is this present moment. It's taking care of this moment, this moment, this moment, and learning. It's, so the, the, the quiet passion is about learning how to live, really. You, and self-knowing and learning how to live are just different ways of saying the same thing. Because who's learning how to live? It's each one of us. Uh, and it's practical, it's very practical, and you learn how to live by paying attention and improving your ability to size up the impact of how you live. And then often we know exactly what to do, and we don't do it. We betray our understanding. So then the challenge of learning is, that's interesting, I know exactly what to do or not do, and I betray my understanding. And then that becomes an area of investigation. Why do I do that? That's kind of stupid. I know exactly what to do, my life would improve, and I don't do it. And you, maybe you find fear. So then you practice with fear. You take a look at fear. And so it's, there's an active aspect to it. There's a learning aspect to it. And the prerequisite, it seems to me, is a clear mind. As clear, and to begin with, our mind is not so clear. It's a muddied mirror. The Chinese put dust on the mirror. Practice is dusting off the mirror. And the clarity of seeing it's also got to have an interest in learning from what you see and hear, both externally and internally. And so it's that journey. Because finally, we have to learn how to die. Eat, I'm sorry for you. Some of you look, you know, to me, you look quite young. Uh, you're going to die. I don't know how to break it to you. <laughs> you're also going to get old, probably. And good chance you may even get sick. Sorry, I didn't write the script. It's the way it goes. Okay, so the learning is learning how to age. Learning, how to, how to, what do you do when you get ill? Do you just lie in bed and veg out and complain and whine and just watch one soap opera after another? Or, you know, or is there some way in which even illness, 
can help us grow and uh, tap our potential and, and actually flourish inwardly, even though the body, may, the body may not be in such good shape. And inevitably, we, we must die. Uh, can we die with dignity? I want to die awake. I don't want to be drugged out, and uh, th I don't. I don't know if I'll be fortunate enough to be able to. But I want to die in the saddle, as John Wayne might have put it. I don't know about you. Last word. When was I supposed to quit? <laughs> really? You can see how grateful I am. <laughs> Just pouring out of me. Uh, what I've learned and seen, and it's not like I have never experienced what I'm about to say, is that sometimes Thanksgiving is not a happy time. Uh, we don't have a lot of friends. We just perhaps had a personal loss, a death, or a relationship ending. Maybe we just came to town and we're new. Maybe we got some other kind of bad news. We're unemployed. There are all kinds of ways of feeling. And this just rubs it in, where all your friends are going home and celebrating this and that. And there's little me. Uh, I don't know, going to uh, Oban Pond to get a croissant and a cup of coffee, you know, it's a, and then feeling sorry for yourself. Um, sometimes the Buddha would, would work with people who were really sad, depressed, and in a sense have nothing to be grateful for. And so he would ask them, as I'm going to ask you, if any of you fit that, and even if it don't, because it's something to use all the time whenever you need it, um, can all of you hear me right now? You can. Okay. There are countless people on the planet who can't hear. They're deaf. Did you know that? Plenty of them. Can you all see me? There are lots of people on the planet who are blind. They can't see anything. And we can keep going. And so you start to take stock of yourself in a very, very stuff that we take for granted and realize maybe the body is you know, having problems, certain illness, certain limitations, but I'm still alive. Uh, the, there's a capacity to know as you practice that this knowing is miraculous. The ability for this, see the awareness never gets sick. Awareness doesn't get old. Awareness doesn't have a weight problem. It really doesn't. It sees all this. Awareness just sees. And what the, the teachings are saying is, be that in you which knows. Don't get sucked into all the scenery that's passing, none of which sticks around and is unreliable. Uh, I apologize for going so long, but um, I have no excuse. I'm just... <laughs> Uh, look, some of you have to leave, please leave, but let me change the instructions, although I'm glad you didn't say it today. I'm, I don't think you did. Sometimes we say, well, you, if you decide to stay, you can't leave. I won't consider it rude. Let's say you only have 10 minutes to stay, and then you really have to catch a train or whatever it is. It's not rude. Just get up and leave whenever you have to. But let's start right now. Any questions? And those who have to leave, start leaving, but because I'm such a blabbermouth, no pause. <laughs> So anything we can talk over together. Please. Thank you. Uh, I, I remember the last talk uh, I went to that you gave. I came away with life is the biggest teacher. Yes. And um, one of the things that I was wondering is while you were 
talking, I was thinking, where is meaning? How do I find meaning? And if I ask myself that question, am I just getting myself more into the story of me? Could be. It's thinking, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. The times when life has the most obvious meaning for me is when I'm not thinking. I'm just, in other words, living. What's the most basic? Why are we alive? To live. And when I'm fully alive, which means when the mind is clear, that question never comes, comes to mind. Because uh, the meaning, um, look, to begin with, it's, we, we have different values and priorities and so forth. So we have to start there. But when the mind gets clear, I don't think it's, that kind of question comes up at all. So maybe you are doing what you said. I don't know. You, you find out. Um, that, for example, uh, there are teachings, uh, bodhisattva teachings, to help other people. Okay. There are teachings to cultivate... Okay, this is one that those of you who have been here before know about. Metta, loving-kindness. We can cultivate that quality. When the mind is really silent, the love is there. It's intrinsic. It's not something you have to cultivate. Uh, so what, what's the meaning of life? Uh, it's too obvious to waste brain waves on. Uh, if somebody falls down, you help them get up. It's not like, oh, I'm a good person. Uh, I'm a great bodhisattva. It's just natural. Uh, now that sounds idealized, and maybe it is. You have to test that. Maybe I'm full of baloney. But um, is there any more to your question? Because that, for me, it doesn't come up any. It used to. There are all these different competing, what, is, what, is, what means anything in life? I would, for me, the question is always how to live from moment to moment. That's, that's Socrates' big question. And the answer comes from living and learning. Okay. But the quiet passion, um, sometimes it feels like nothing is there. It feels like empty. And uh, say more about empty. Is it silent? Um, well, part of it is I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth between feeling like the silence is boring and then other times feeling like the silence is incredibly rich. Okay. So it's this back and forth thing that's happening. Okay, but the practice, the, the practice uh, there's another teaching, the highest teaching is of, of uh, the newborn baby. In other words, the newborn baby is interested in everything. You know, it doesn't have all these views and opinions and ideologies yet. Okay, so if the mind is, silence is just a word. Okay, the mind is silent and then there's boredom. That's what you're proud, become aware of boredom. If it's, what, did you, what was the word? You, if it's rich, that's just, not the word rich, not the word boredom. In fact, it's, this is not about words. There's the energy of boredom. Now then, I could ask a further question. What is it that's bored with silence? See, the old mind doesn't value silence. It gives it no, it, it, because we've given all of our, we think that living is just thinking and doing. Feel, you know, motion. Okay, that is part of living. Part of the natural endowment of a human being, which we have very little contact with, is we're much more, we're, we're vast, each one of us. 
it's not unique to any of us. We all have it. Okay, but that our education doesn't include that, and so we're tr everything is staked on how well we think, how well we act, our emotional life. In other words, mind body. Okay, so uh, find out what is it that's bored. But you know, it's not necessarily through thinking. Just look at it. Uh, but the essence of the teaching is to not turn away from what is. In other words, if in that moment there's boredom, it's not saying you shouldn't be bored. It's just the fact is you are bored. Okay, take a look at that because that's what's happening, but not the word. That energy that we've called boredom. And you might find that it's extra. It's silence and there's a little bit of a reaction to the silence. Then again, it may be some kind of a vacuous feeling. You know, the word silence covers, it's just the word too. And there is silence that we wouldn't be having this conversation. And some of it is is a kind of neither awake or asleep. But yet, if I use silence, it's going to lump them together. So we need a better word, and some of you maybe can come up with it. But the practice is moving with not turning away from what is. So whatever you tell me, that's what you go through. And then meaning emerges from that. But it's not necessarily as a word. Um, I'm going to put it in another way, which uh, particularly Americans don't like. Maybe you will, but mo many don't. As the mind gets clearer, you have fewer and fewer choices to make. We like having lots of choices, flavors, you know. Uh, what it means is as the mind gets clearer, it's so obvious what you should do. Uh, when the mind is confused, let's see, should I get blueberry, raspberry, citrus yogurt? Or should I get just plain yogurt? No, but there's vanilla yogurt. Should I get it with 1% fat or no percent? You know, or it doesn't see clearly. When it sees clearly, and even ordinary things, like more and more, I used to be a, a conflict-ridden person. I'd make lists, you know, one side. On the one hand, if I do this, I get this, that, and that. But then again, I don't get that. Then on the other hand, that just died some years ago. Because when the mind is clear, um, it, it just living becomes a lot easier. It's the confused mind that is always in conflict, choosing, should I do this, should I do that, maybe, who, do you see what I'm getting at? But see if it's so, test it, test everything I'm saying, Kalama Sutta. Yeah. Please. You sit with that? How do you sit and how do you have any level of awareness when, you know, you're pretty much guaranteed that the second you sit and, and things start to calm down, that's going to come up and what do you do? I mean, can you sit? How do you do it? I don't know. Can you? I, I could today, but it was really hard last night. Okay. See, it's not a yes or no kind of thing. But let's say uh, the, 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 the edge 
of, of Vipassana meditation, Zen meditation, is don't turn away from what is. So the, 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 the bad news, the heaviness in the heart. Now, we don't want to, we, we want to switch channels. Take me anywhere. I don't, and it's not rub your face in, in the sorrow, this, the heaviness. But you might have to look at how much you don't want to look at it. Or uh, when you look at it, you find that it swallows you up. Uh, because your awareness is not steady enough yet. So then, and sometimes what you have to do is gladden the heart. In other words, you switch to channel breath. You switch to channel metta. You switch to channel walking meditation. Or something that brings some joy. And then you come back into the fray. Uh, But you see, the problem is, and this is when I listen to people, I'm very careful with this. How long have you been, been practicing? Okay. You mean sitting? Yeah, I mean sitting regularly, like half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening. Okay, but to me, meditation is a way of life. It's not just sitting. Oh, but okay. I understand. It gives me a rough idea of, of your what you're doing. That's fine. Um, what I've seen, and this is not based on you because I don't know you, is people who uh, often will say, well, yeah, that sounds right. Don't turn away from what's happening. Uh, but I can't do it. Fine. I go to metta. I go to the breath. There are a lot of things that, in a sense, they're constructive um, ways of bringing a little bit of joy into the heart because every time you look at, let's say, what you're talking about, you're overwhelmed by it. And practically speaking, you can't do it. Okay. So that might be wisdom. Wisdom might be, uh, it's sort of like a good general knows when to retreat to regroup forces so that then you come back uh, with more energy, well-fed, rested, etc. But what I found, it's a delicate, you have to be careful here, is because there's something in the mind that's, it's nothing personal, that's just a big baby, okay? And it doesn't, I don't want to look at anything that's not pleasant. I just want to be comfortable and happy and be in a comfort zone every moment of my life for the rest of my life. It's not about you, please. I wasn't scared of sitting down and crying for half an hour. I wasn't scared of that at all. But if I, I could do that whether I'm sitting on the cushion or not. It's not about a cushion. It's about a whether awareness is accompanying your crying or not. Right. That was my, that's my question. Is that's how, the answer. How do you find awareness in that? Because there, it's, it's kind of like when you get that thought and you get lost in the thought when you are sitting. Of course. And you have to learn. Or 10 years, you start again, you start again. See, the, the, the instructions are not, you don't need a new method. But um, uh, you come back to it. Now, uh, if it wipes the floor with you again and again, but you stay in there, it's something, this is learning. We have to learn how to do what you're talking about. For example, we humans, and I'm making this as a general statement, you see if it's so for yourself. I feel confident that it's true for a lot of us, maybe all of us. We don't seem to learn much from our suffering. Okay, that rings a bell with you? You smiled. I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not about better or worse or anything. It's just true. Okay, because we suffer a lot and we don't seem to learn from it. I mean, if you look at a whole life, not just... Okay. Uh, this is a... Why does the Buddha... Why is the Four Noble Truths called noble? The first noble truth is called the truth of suffering. This is psychological suffering. 
It's saying, it, just because you suffer, does that make you noble? Of course not. Because the planet is full of, of sorrow. That's not, but the suffering is a doorway into liberation. Because if you, don't, if you can't face that, how are you going to get free? Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Because that's a, that's a, all of us humans are subject to it. There's no human who's ever born who doesn't know what I'm talking about right now. So, the, so then the question is, uh, how do you approach this sorrow that uh, if someone has died or is very seriously ill? My yeah. Died, yeah. What? My, my died. I understand. Okay. So that sorrow uh, comes up. You're, now, there's also reflections. Reflections are a skillful use of thought. So it, there are many things that can help you. One would be you understand how old was your uncle, approximately. He was old. Okay. Okay, so sometimes, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's go on a different direction. Oh, don't, do you, don't be silly. No, no, wait a minute. It's a joke. Okay. If I haven't made peace with my age by now, uh, it's curtains for me. I've been working, in other words, I can't say I totally, I feel I am at home with it. I know I'm 75. I know there's certain capacities that are, are started, have, fall, have fallen away. They're not so strong anymore. And I practice, that's where the learning is. Okay, so you have an opportunity, uh, so one is a reflection, sort of like, well, he lived a, a full life, and now he's, a, and, he, and also an acceptance of the fact that your uncle really is dead. He's not coming back. Okay. Is there any self-pity? Um, what I've noticed is just that I'm, I think there's more guilt. Okay. I'm, I'm from Iowa. I can't go home to the funeral. I can't You're from where? I'm from Iowa. Mm -hmm. I, I can't go home to the funeral. Right. I can't be there with my grieving family that I'd, I'd really like to be there with them. Um, and a lot of it is just, I'm, I just, I miss him. You know, I'm not sad that he's dead for himself. I'm sad because I'm going to miss him and his funniness and all that. Okay, but this is the stuff of wisdom. You see, so you, it's not that you need a new, uh, new method or technique. It's this is what is. Uh, guilt. Okay, so in it, throw the word out, though, because guilt is, does, doesn't have a good press. It's, language is a very powerful conditioner. Like if you say cancer, if you say fear, the word itself, it's sort of like throwing gasoline on a fire and then wondering why is the fire getting stronger. Uh, that energy of um, feeling badly about not going home to Iowa. Okay. I assume, you know, for whatever reason, you've thought about it and you can't go. Okay, fine. Then you have to come to terms with what that brings up. It's not good or bad. It's just true. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.